and welcome to another episode of Real Estate Insights, the podcast series from Savills, exploring the real stories behind the property headlines and getting to grips with the forces driving property markets. We're taking a look at what's going on in every corner of the property world and offering you a uniquely Savills perspective on what's coming down the road. And we're doing all of that with some of the brightest and best minds in the business. And with me, Guy Rutherford. Today, we're looking at a part of the market that some see as a knight in shining armour, ready to charge to the rescue and provide at least part of the solution to the UK's housing shortage crisis, at the same time as giving investors healthy, long-term, stable returns. Remember buy to let? Well, wave goodbye to that and say hello to build to rent. And joining me to solve the whole housing crisis in a 10-minute chat are Peter Allen, who's Head of Operational Capital Markets at Savills, and Jackie Daly, who is the Director of Savills' Residential Research Team. So, first of all, Peter, what is Operational Capital Markets? Operational Capital Markets is a team within Savills that looks after basically anything that produces an income and has a pillow, excluding hotels. So we give advice to clients who own buildings that have been designed to rent for um, individuals, uh, for students, um, and for a number of other different uses in between. So let's talk about build to rent, uh, which is what we're here to talk about today. Uh, Peter, what is build to rent? Yeah, thank good question, Guy. Built to rent is a bit of an odd uh, statement, actually, because it is used within the property market to describe buildings that have been, funnily enough, built to uh, be rented out. But it covers a number of different terms. In more mature marketplaces, uh, like in, you might find in the US or in Central Europe, Germany particularly, Switzerland, um, the term multifamily is more commonly used. And that is a description of a building uh, of flats that has been designed, as I say, specifically to be rented out. Um, if the property was for a uh, family, so i.e. a house, it would be then termed single family. So built to rent is a generic term that effectively covers uh, construction of buildings that have been designed specifically to rent. And Jackie, are we talking specifically about sort of institutional investors here? Is that what differentiates it from private buy-to-let landlords? Yes, but institutions, in that sense, you'd have to use it quite loosely because it would include housing associations, the registered providers, listed PLCs, family offices. You know, there's a full range, but I guess I'd say it's about a professionally run um, portfolio of rental rental units. Uh, um, If you're building to do it, as as opposed to, or even if you're converting, say, office blocks or whatever, or, or anything to do it, is there a difference between build to rent and build to sell? I mean, do, do you do something differently in the way you construct it or manage it or whatever? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at current uh, providers of homes to sell, their motive is to build quality product and sell it to an owner who will then be um, the custodian of that property. If you look at the motive of an institutional landlord, their motive is to build a quality product and continue to own it. And that's a very different distinction. And if you think about the, the difference in those motives, you look at creating communities, creating additional functions within buildings that connect the tenants together, that create a sense of place, um, a service provision that allows tenants to really enjoy living in that place, choosing to rent rather than being forced to rent, as perhaps they might have been um, under the old regimes. Yeah, because th- th- that is, I suppose, one of the big issues here, Jackie, that the we do live in the UK still in a culture of people wanting home ownership rather than home renting. Is that 
changing? Is that a necessary change or, or, or are we still going to carry on with primarily wanting to own our own homes? Uh, yeah, I think that aspiration hasn't gone away. But the reality of of the situation is that, you know, house prices are at so high now, there's a big affordability barrier for people to get their foot on the housing ladder. The average first-time buyer now in the UK is, depending on what statistics you look at, between 30 and 35. So here's the thing about this, OK? I think we all know the figures. The government thinks that we, we need to build something like 300,000 homes a year. As you say, Jackie, we know that house prices have gone up much faster than, faster than incomes and that there's a huge gap here. There are lots of organisations, pension funds, etc., looking to, to invest money in lots of places. Why hasn't this happened before? Because the returns that investors get from different assets has changed so much that actually residential is now more competitive than it used to be. So it's competing with the other asset classes and actually housing has has got a very strong link to earnings. So now investors are thinking, yeah, actually, this is an asset class we want to invest in so over are, the long term. So there are real changes happening to the dynamics here. Yeah, there are. And I think the last recession really squeezed the mortgage provision um, to the point at which um, the ability to go and take a 100%, 90%, even 80% mortgages is significantly restricted. And so purchasers now have to save up considerable deposits before they're unable to purchase a property. And that's very difficult to do. And it's one thing being able to afford the, enough money to pay for the interest rate and the capital repayment, but it's something quite different when you have to then suddenly produce £100,000 or uh, whatever the number is to buy, to buy your first property. And that's why the average age of uh, first-time buyers moved out so far. Um, whereas that previously, is a typical deposit in London, £100,000 oh, would so be exactly. typical. Yeah, but you know, Guy, I mean, one of the interesting statistics is that you asked us why has this not happened before, but of course, if you go back 100 years, it certainly did happen before, and the percentage of the private rented sector then was something like 98%. So we, we have been here before, but clearly this is uh, modern properties for a modern age. So the private land, landlord, bright let market, is, is the risk of using a technical term, tanking, <laughs> it's being taxed, yeah. So wallops. getting wallops, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a three percent additional stamp duty charge. So right now, this institutional investor developing property for this purpose, how much of the market is is it worth? What sort of percentage of the market is it? Well, the private rental sector in in capital value is worth one point three trillion. It's worth more than the FTSE and the commercial property market combined. It is enormous. But the institutional ownership of that private rental sector is minuscule. It's 3%, Jackie. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. really? Only about 3%? Yeah. 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 And that's going to change? Well, it's growing. We have a pipeline of um, multifamily coming through, which is about 130,000 units. Um, But that's still tiny. It's a fraction of what the buy-to-let market is. So it will take many years for the institutions to grow their share of the market, but I expect they will. Um, Yeah, certainly, you know, the US, for example, it's really 50-50 between buy-to-let and institutional investment. Germany's the same, 50-50. The Netherlands has a very big institutional investment market. So, yeah, I would see, going forward, we're going to see a lot more um, ownership um, by by the larger institutions and the housing associations. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's the, the size of the institutional ownership 
um, being so small is the opportunity because that allows new entrants to the market to really project, present a, a point of difference to the consumer, to the tenant. I always use the analogy of, you know, my first car, the old kind of Cortina. And if you to come to me and said, you know, would, what would you like in your next car? I'd have said, well, I'd like a, a, it to start on a November morning. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> and, and perhaps a stereo. Whereas if you go to the guy with the fancy new Mercedes and say, what do you want in your next car? He might say, well, I want it to go not to 60 and sort of a, f- a second less and have the super woofer. So it's starting for a very low base. So it's an easy win for a, uh, a new entrant coming in, an institution or a professional property company looking to service that marketplace. What's the risk for an institutional investor? Because you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the market dynamics, which are all pointing in the, or seem to all be pointing in this direction. Where, where's the risk for them? Well, I, th- I think institutional owners um, don't like taking development risk. They don't like the the uncertainty that laying a brick on a brick gives them. Um, but they are, they are almost forced into that space right now because these buildings in a design, a specifically designed function don't exist. So they have to do that. So that's a big risk. I think you have to consider that this is unreg- largely unregulated industry right now. And therefore, if rent regulation were to come in, for example, that would present an additional risk. Um, but other than that, all the risks are the same as you would see in any other form of real estate ownership. One of the reasons institutions will look at designing a building is all about you know, the operating it efficiently and effectively because delivering residential, it's a very leaky leaky business um and if we um just the costs you know you've got tenants turning over you you know (laughs) (laughs) but that's my point they need the income to be able to maintain the buildings and if we look back to history and the reason the institution sold back in the 60s was because their income wasn't big enough they couldn't grow their income to be able to maintain the property so A risk for an institution would be, you know, where rents are capped to such an extent that they don't have enough income to maintain and operate the building and then they would have to sell it. It would be broken up and sold. Again, I don't see that as a huge risk because I think the um, government um, on on, on both sides recognise that, you know, the rental market is serving a big purpose in the market today and it has the potential to continue to increase housing supply. Uh, that, that, that's spot on. And you, you touched on that at the start of the podcast, Guy, that you know there is a, a fundamental shortfall of housing in the UK and the government needs to pull all the levers at its disposal to be able to meet that um, shortfall. Who are going to be the big players, do you think, in this then? Anyone that you have uh, a pension with um, will be a provider of a rental product because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, rents are a good hedge against wage inflation. And wage inflation is what all of these big institutions, uh, insurance businesses and pension funds Mm. are concerned about. If we look at the student sector, though, the the consolidation, that sector has been around for longer, so Mm. maybe 15 to 18 years. It's gone through a period of development and then consolidation. And actually, the owners of that stock has changed. So, you know, who's going to be the owner of this multifamily market? You know, there were some of them are here today, but actually we'll probably get a whole new wave of investors when there is assets there that are stabilised and investors can come in and buy portfolios. Some of them don't want to take that development risk that you yeah. mentioned, Peter. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree. I agree. So right back at the beginning, uh, I slightly tongue in cheek uh, suggested that this was going to be that this market is the what, you know knight on a charger riding to the rescue of the property crisis. How far off was that 
How, how far it, into my cheek should my tongue have been? Solving this, the UK housing crisis can't be done by any one part of the market. We need more affordable housing. We need more rental market, rented housing. We need open market. We need the full spectrum. And what, what's good is that in the latest kind of government housing policy agenda, there, it's very much about mixed tenure delivery delivering the full range of housing on sites and not being focused on, you know, everybody wants to become a homeowner, so let's just build owner-occupied housing. No, we need it all. So I think build to rent has an important part to play in it. Um, you know, it, it it is leading to increasing supply numbers. And I think in the market that we've got today, which is very uncertain, you know, we're, we're probably going to see lower growth over the next few years, particularly in London and the South. Well, build to rent has an important part to play in that kind of dynamics. Yeah, yeah it's fundamental. I mean, mm. I think when you consider the, the the wider risks that the economy faces right now, um, that if you are a chief executive of a, a multinational insurance business, you need to match your returns with the risk that your business is taking. And that's incredibly difficult to peg right now in all markets. Um, multifamily built to rent, private renter sector, call it what you will, is one of the most predictable forms of income that you can invest into. Uh, it's based on demographics which are unarguable. Urbanization is something that is is you know happening. We can all see it and see and, and feel it. Um, and it's also resistant to technology. Everybody needs a pillow at night. So from that perspective, you know, you're into an investment class, it's very easy to predict the return flow on, and that's why it's so attractive to the investors. And that feels like just about the right sort of place to end this episode of Real Estate Insights. Thank you both very much uh, for being here. If that hasn't given you enough to think about already and you want to find out more, you could do worse than to visit the research section of Savile's website, savills.co.uk, and search Investing in Private Rent or something like that. There's plenty more there, most of it written by Jackie, actually, and a few of her colleagues. And if you want to make sure that you're the wisest head around when talk turns to any aspect of the property world, then please subscribe to our podcast using your usual podcast provider in the meantime thank you very much for listening and see you next time this podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.